0: When Christopher Columbus set out, he had two control beliefs that designated his entire understanding. Control beliefs. One, he believed in Ptolemy's geography. He believed in this ancient cartographer, latitudes, longitudes, the way that Ptolemy had laid out the earth. He also believed that the earth was, that the the world was six parts land and one part water. Those were Christopher Columbus's control beliefs as he set out to discover what he didn't think was the new world. It was, where was he headed? He was headed to the Indies. And both of those control beliefs have certainly sort of been adapted and adjusted with time and further consideration. There's no question about that. But you know how Christopher Columbus handled it when his control beliefs didn't quite pan out? When he got to the shore and it didn't really look like the West Indies, Christopher Columbus just changed the map and said, hmm, this is interesting. There must be another second longer peninsula of Asia that I've just discovered. Little did he know that it was the real new world. And we all do that. We don't change the geography of Asia, but we all have control beliefs that instead of ever being able to adjust or adapt our control beliefs, we set the world around them. There is a very fine line to consider when it comes to control beliefs. You need to have some. You need to have a foundation. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a need. And yet, they can force us to miss the reality of situations and force us to arrive at incorrect conclusions like a second peninsula of Asia. When it was something entirely different, we have some control beliefs and here are two of them. John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hebrews 11:6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be the one who rewards those who seek him. Which raises a point that I want to make one more time. The Bible is the authoritative word for theology in this world, and yet it must be interpreted. And the Bible is interpreted through the use of human ideas, intellect, and logic. And yes, the Holy Spirit. Never going never to negate or dismiss that. But to a large degree, human intellect, logic, and idea, and a genuine appeal to the of authority and validity of the Scriptures does not consist in merely citing Bible verses and concluding that your point has been made. To quote a verse in rebuttal to a position that is different than yours to make your point is to suggest that your opponent is a moron who has absolutely no idea that those particular scriptures exist. And thank God you pulled this one out to let him know how wrong they are. That's not a valid defense of things. The truth of the matter is your opponent probably does, if they are a student of the Bible, have a very strong awareness of those scriptures. But you know what the difference is? Their very same control beliefs are interpreted completely differently than yours, and therefore they see those scripture verses completely differently than you do. And yet... We have these controlled beliefs. That is not to suggest in any way that there is no truth. There is, there must be truth. It is to say we are not fully aware of it. And I know that's uh, controversial, but, you know, that's the truth of it. There are libraries, libraries, bookshelves upon bookshelves of, of books written in opposition to some of the things I'm going to mention to you today. And I'm okay with that. I am okay with that. We have challenged some thinking already and that also is okay. And you don't have to agree with everything I say, or for that matter, anything I say ever, but I don't think this would be the greatest place you'd ever wanna come to worship if that were the case. Um, But you don't have to share my way of thinking or change your ways or anything because I point out alternatives. But here is what you do have to do. This is what you must do. And that is recognize quite plainly that God is God. His ways are above our comprehension. He thinks differently. He does things differently. And there are mysteries of which we may never, ever comprehend in this life or the next one. It only is what he chooses to reveal to us that will be revealed. And that even if you have set your sights on discovering the West Indies, theologically speaking, God can redirect your path and he can show you and set a course for a new world full of opportunity and blessing and realizations. One which ultimately may provide liberty and freedom in thought to allow God to be just absolutely as big as he really is. And not fit into your little tiny theological box. The box of control beliefs. So, today, for some people, I'm gonna challenge an interpretation of control beliefs. Is that exciting? And potentially cause you to consider a reroute, if you will, of your spiritual Nina Pinta and Santa Maria. <laughs> so let us proceed together into what is actually the last elementary principle, eternal judgment. There is a judgment. It is spoken of throughout the Bible. Second Corinthians five. Each one may receive compensation for the his or her deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Romans 14, each one of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. This is the New Testament, right? And that could be kind of scary because I thought we were all set in this thing. I thought with Yeshua it's uh, it's it is finished the deeds are done and why do my deeds have anything to do with anything and what's this giving an account thing well, at this stage in the process, many have already been resurrected and now stand for entrance into the world to come. Some followers of Messiah have also died and been resurrected during the Messianic age, and now they too stand ready for judgment at what is called the great white throne judgment. Yes, judgment for believers. But these are, these are the ones found in the book of life. These are the ones who Yeshua said, don't don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is recorded in heaven. What is this with deeds? The righteous at the first and second resurrection now enter into the world to come and they are not judged by their deeds because they are in Messiah, but you must answer for your deeds. Do you understand that the Bible says that? Many people do not. I thought our deeds were like filthy rags before God. That's what Isaiah says. We could be very graphic and describe, describe the actual Hebrew of what those filthy rags are. We won't today. But it's this simple. You know that thing in the Bible about storing up treasures in heaven? This is the time. Is that something hard to believe? I think it would be harder to believe the alternative, that it is completely and totally a- opposed to justice, that somebody who, 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 who lived a-, a lukewarm, nominal believer, though, though confessing a love of God and follower of disciple does very, very little to demonstrate that, I think it would be illogical and opposed to justice that that person, when compared to a selfless, committed servant who labored for the kingdom and for others in life with no expectation of reward, would find the very same standing in heaven. Or to bring in another significantly Jewish consideration, that one who suffered immensely in this life and still demonstrated a faith beyond measure would not receive some type of greater reward in the world to come. Remember, we talked about this, the suffering of the righteous in this world and all of the rabbinic literature talking about the upside down world and the other side, what was upside down here is right side up and there is a reward for the righteous. Why would Yeshua tell us to store up rewards in heaven if there were not any rewards to be stored up in heaven? And those rewards are measured, I'm sorry to say, or happy to say, depending on your perspective, that they're based on your deeds and how you live as a disciple of Yeshua. Revelation 19:8 talks of the bride making herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You ever paid attention to that? The righteous deeds of the saints clothe you in the world to come. And we can consider this through another Jewish lens. As with Gehenom, Gan Eden, or paradise, was supposed to consist, consist of seven divisions for the seven degrees in which those who merit it are capable of being classified. There are classes of righteous in Gan Aden, one higher than the other. The first is alluded to in the text. The righteous shall give thanks unto thy name. The upright shall dwell in thy presence. And it goes through seven different levels. They who are admitted into Gan Aden are adjudged so that they may be accommodated in the division to which they are entitled. Each righteous person will be assigned a dwelling in accordance with the honor due to him. And it is the parable of a human king who entered a city with his servants. And although they enter through one gate, when they take up their quarters, each is allotted his place according to his works. That's the Talmud. Now, you can believe that or not, that's fine, but this you must believe. There is a reward in the life to come for your deeds. Point made, got it? Easy. The wicked, that's even easier the wicked at this great white throne judgment. They're judged by their deeds, it says. They are found in the book of death. And where are they thrown? Into the lake of fire. And that's the end of it. That's the end of it. Based on what we've uncovered in this series and talked about, that's the end of it. And yet, I want you to keep two texts in mind. One very appropriate as we're having slides for Rosh Hashanah in the month of Elul talking about the shofar being prepared. The Talmud in Rosh Hashanah 16b says that the Gemara goes back now to discuss the day of judgment. It says three books are opened on Rosh Hashanah. You're familiar with this by now, right? We've talked a lot about the three books. Three books are opened. One for the holy wicked, one for the holy righteous, and one of the middling people. I like that word. Not meddling, the middling people, the intermediates in one of the books. The holy righteous are immediately written and sealed for life, the wicked are immediately sealed for death, and the middling people are left with their judgment suspended from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur, their fate remaining undecided. And you remember, this is for life next year. That's what this is talking about. If they merit through good deeds and mitzvot they perform during this period, they're written for life. If they don't, they die. That's the Talmud and Rosh Hashanah. That Talmud in Rosh Hashanah 16 continues. It is taught also, Beit Shammai, the house of Shammai, says there will be three groups of people on the great day of judgment at the end of days. One of the holy righteous, one of the holy wicked, and one of the middling people. So where are we now? We move from the annual festival of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur now to the great white throne judgment, and we're still talking about books. The holy righteous will be immediately written and sealed for eternal life. The holy wicked will be immediately sealed for Gehenna and the middling people will descend to Gehenna to be cleansed and to achieve atonement for their sins. Now, forget about that part just for the moment. The theme is what we've talked a lot about. Forget about the purgation and everyone, universal salvation. Forget about that for a minute. This is the theme. And this goes back to Beit Shemai, which predates Yeshua and is smack dab in the middle of the life and culture of Yeshua and the apostles. Would it then surprise us that the book of Revelation also at the end of judgment speaks of books. Would that be surprising to us? No, we've already talked about it. And it says there in Revelation, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. What just happened? The dead were judged according to what is written in the book. How? What was the measure? Their deeds. That's what it says. I didn't make that up. That's what it says in the text. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to their What's the measure of judgment? Their deeds, what they've done at this great white throne judgment. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. There are a lot of people here. Visualize it. There are a lot of people here. Everybody's here. You don't want to miss this. It's the party of the year. The righteous that we talked about, the first, the first resurrection and those righteous resurrected in the second resurrection, they're gone. They're already done. They're sealed. They're in, they're in heaven. They've arrived in heaven. They are in paradise now forever at this judgment. They are not really their judging of deeds is something different that we talked about just now. Rewards in heaven. Those in the second resurrection that are found in the book of death, they are desperately wicked and even in death when confronted with punishment and destruction, they weep and gnash their teeth and go away into eternal punishment. That is the wicked. So we've accomplished now two groups. The wicked are in the wicked are in the fire, the righteous are in heaven. But listen, and this you got to listen carefully to. And I'm going to give you your money's worth today, so get some toothpicks for your eyes if you need them, because you need to hear this. Those in the second resurrection whose names are found written in the book of life at this judgment are the world to come. All of the dead are judged. All of the dead are judged. Those in Sheol, those in death. But that is not the people who were part of the first resurrection. They were not dead. They were alive. They were resurrected. These are other people. This is the second resurrection. And what is the judge looking for? Just stay with me. Just stay with me. I'll get you through this. What's the judge looking for? He opens books. Right. Opens books. This is the book of life. It's really big. Actually, it's probably smaller one. Books are open. What's he looking for? Your name to be written in this book. How did it get there? By your deeds. If anyone's name was not found written in the book, he was thrown into the fire, which implies that some names were found in this book and they were not thrown into the fire. This is the second resurrection where everyone is being judged by their deeds. How could someone possibly be written in this book from the intermediate group? It's contrary to everything we know about Jesus and salvation, or what we've been told. It is reasonable, however, to propose that at least some from the second resurrection will not be thrown into the lake of fire. Why else would we be told that this book of life was opened if no genuine search was to be made? It is not a judgment any other way if you're not looking to see if you merit it. Or here's a really crazy thing. Maybe there's the book of the middle, which is described. And at this point, the judge makes the judgment. And your name is moved from one book or to the other. Not because you repented after death. Not for post-mortem repentance, not because of purgation and fire, But because of their deeds, the judge wrote them into the book of life. This is judgment. This is the high holiday. These are the middlers judged by their deeds. This is the judgment. Some will be found worthy of death. Some will be found worthy of life. And this is controversial. I get it. And this will cause great difficulty. But we're going to look at this right now. And we're going to start by way of a quote. John Stott who is by no means any kind of liberal theologian. He is an evangelistic theologian who said this, I have never been able to conjure up the appalling vision of the millions where not only are they perishing, but inevitably will perish. In other words, he's saying they had absolutely no choice, that he's talking about Calvin and predestination and all that. He says, I've never been able to imagine a place where where God allows millions to inevitably perish. They had no choice. On the other hand, I am not and cannot be a universalist. In other words, I can't believe everyone's saved. Between these extremes, I cherish the hope that the majority of the human race will be saved. And I have a solid biblical basis for that belief. He's not the only one who has some crazy thoughts when measured against traditional orthodoxy. You know who John Wesley is? John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, a pillar of sorts, did not conceive that any man living has a right to sentence all the heathen and Mahometan, the Muslims. He didn't, his quote, it is, I cannot conceive that any man living has the right to sentence all heathen and Muslim world to damnation. It is far better to leave them to him who made them and who is the father of all spirits of flesh, who is the God of the heathens as well as the Christians, and who hateth nothing that he has made? John Wesley. Martin Luther. How about some Marty? How about some Marty? When asked if anyone could be saved apart from the faith, Martin Luther's answer was a resounding? new. Or however, you, niet. No, that's Russian. How do you say no in German? No, no. Nein. Nein. Can anyone be saved apart from faith? Uh, Martin Luther, nine. But he responds, It would be quite a different question whether God can impart faith to see in the hour of death or after death, so that these people could be saved through faith. How do you say yes in Hebrew? I mean, in uh, forget it. Control belief number one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Agreed. Indisputable. Absolutely not up for debate. No one comes to the Father except through Yeshua. Who's the judge? Who's the judge at the great white throne judgment? Yeshua is the judge. How do we know that? Well, it tells us that. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, John 5. Romans 2, God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. Through the Messiah, God judges people's secrets. Now, he brings this clarity for us now. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen to this. You are either part of the first resurrection because you are in Messiah, as Paul describes it, Or at the second resurrection, as the judge searches for your name, he lets you in. In other words, no one's getting in unless the judge lets you in. Either way, who is the final authority on who has eternal life? English or Hebrew, I don't care. Jesus. No one enters eternity without the judge's approval. So that statement is true. No one comes to the Father. No one enters eternal glory. No one has eternal life unless I say so. Control belief too. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Who? Who's the him in Hebrews 11? It is God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be the one who rewards those who seek him. One must have faith in God and that he rewards those who seek him. It cannot be suggested that these people are saved somehow by their righteousness or, or, or by their deeds, With all that we've just talked about, I'm totally contradicting it. No, I'm not. The measure is actually not their deeds. But their deeds can be a demonstration of that which is required for this Hebrews type of salvation, which is what? Faith. Emunah. Emunah and our brother James ties things together. Someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith. Cornelius is a great example, a Gentile. Before Peter arrived with the gospel, Cornelius was serving God and offering up prayers at the appropriate time in accordance with things that he didn't even really know. He was a God-fearer, yes. But before Yeshua, as a pagan, sort of, it's, uh, it's, it's even argued among many well-versed theologians, well, that there are not many paths to God. And this sort of romantic picture of everybody just le, 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 making their way however they want, it doesn't say there are many paths. However, there are those There are those unevangelized billions of people, billions of people, or even those who have been given a false, skewed, or incorrect presentation of the gospel of Messiah who demonstrate what theologians refer to as a habit of faith, not nun's clothing, a habit of faith. And as an example, take the Jewish people who have been told and forced to believe at the risk of death. Told to believe that their Messiah is one who rejected Torah. One who broke the Sabbath on purpose, willingly, just to spite and encouraged others to do the same thing. And they have been told that Yeshua came and said things like, I'm declaring all foods clean. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. I'm doing a new thing. They've been told that that's the Jesus they're supposed to believe in. That's the good news that my Messiah came and did away with Torah, any reasonably observant Jew is required to reject that picture as an idolatrous tragedy. And yet, Jews, many Jews, live with the deepest of connections and commitments to God through their faith. What is this? speaking of the faith that Abraham demonstrated in God, that he was going to bring forth this impossible child, Paul continued to say, it's It's not only for his sake, but for our sake, to whom it will be credited, to us who believe in him, in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, the faith of Abraham. The suggestion is not in any way to say that the that there's necessarily anything like good in non-messianic religions or that there's anything true, I should say. But, but, and this is something that you should hear, one may find signs of serving God and his presence among them, among many, many, many diverse groups of people, which will be demonstrated in their deeds of faith. Now, There are three perspectives on salvation. Universalism, we already talked about it. Everyone will be saved. I can't buy that. I just can't buy it. We discussed it last week. There's too much contrary to that. Too much language from the mouth of Yeshua that's contrary. And as C.S. Lewis famously said, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And that hell, he famously also said, is locked from the inside that people choose to be there. And I believe in that. Another perspective is the restrictivist or exclusivism. I know I've given you all these schools and all these crazy names. Here's a couple more. Restrictivist. Only those who have personally accepted Christ will go to heaven. There are, of course, some exceptions in this opinion. There are some exceptions. Children unbaptized infants, people, you know, mentally ill or people who can't uh, make a decision or sometimes, and this is, this is a forced conclusion that many of these people must arrive at is this, this creative and persistent hope that says things like, well, we couldn't hear it, but I know on our way out of this world, granny said the sinner's prayer and accepted Jesus and all others. In this way of thinking, all others, and that includes, of course, every other religion or anything, are going to hell to receive whatever version of eternal punishment you want to you describe in hell. And finally, there is something else. It's called Christian inclusivism. I want to use a different term, messianic inclusivism, because Christian has a certain connotation that doesn't exactly work for us, which says this. Christian inclusivism or inclusivism says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the source of salvation. His death was for the sins of the world, but God can give the gift of salvation to anyone he chooses based upon the criteria he chooses. It is possible, according to this view, for God to give the gift of salvation to those who have sought to love and serve God, even if they had never heard the gospel or had not fully understood or accepted it. He can give it to people who had heard the gospel, but for whom it did not make sense or who heard it presented poorly, who were raised in another faith and simply could not imagine that the faith their parents had taught them was not true. This view is clear that Christ is the Savior of the world, but his salvation is given by God as God chooses. That's a book called Making Sense of the Bible written by a pretty controversial pastor, but we don't have to listen to everything he says, and we don't have to agree with him on everything. Unless you think I've lost my marbles even quoting what he just said there to describe inclusivism, and I realize, I realize that I may be one of the few people that you've heard openly talk about this, but I know people are thinking about it is a description that says it's rarely heard in the pulpit, often discussed in the pews. I'm not the only one. John Stott, John Wesley, Martin Luther, but C.S. Lewis, Messianic theologian Dan Juster, even Billy Graham. Billy Graham. On Larry King. When he was interviewed back in the 80s. 80s? He made a startling statement and was criticized heavily for it. But the first thing he said was Jesus was the way to God and that he was called to proclaim salvation through believing in him as that way of salvation. He made it clear, Billy Graham did, that there was a danger of being lost. Secondly, Billy Graham also said. The destiny of those who have not had opportunity to receive Jesus Christ was a mystery. And that God was the judge, not Billy Graham. He trusted that God was merciful and would save all that he could, and he held out hope for God's mercy. There's another name for inclusivism, which you might be more familiar with, and I'm certainly not landing my plane on terminology, but it's called the wider hope. You ever heard that phrase? The inclusivist perspective seems, according to this author that I read you, more consistent with the character of God revealed in Jesus and more just. It makes room for human beings to reject salvation but also allows God's mercy to judge everyone according to their heart and faith. It removes the idea that there's a magic prayer that must be spoken, and if you only say the right words, you'll be accepted to heaven, while billions who earnestly sought to love God and neighbor yet did not know to call upon the name of Christ will be tormented eternally in hell. The bottom line is In this perspective, God can distribute the gift of salvation through the way, the truth, and the life made possible through Yeshua to anyone he chooses. Because he is God. Not based on their deeds, but upon their faith, which is evidenced by their deeds. But let's go to the source for two quick examples. Yeshua, how about that? Our rabbi, our teacher, the ultimate authority. He makes clear that the evidence of our faith is the fruit produced in our lives. And in one of the most terrifying moments in the entire Bible for us as believers, Yeshua says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, what will he declare? I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. It's a scripture above that we talked about earlier when he says, don't rejoice that the spirits obey you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And apparently these people's names were not written in heaven, even though... They did everything that they thought were the things. They did it from a place of misalignment. Their faith was not for Jesus or for God. It was for something else. The work of Yeshua makes him the way, the truth, and the life. Not the other way around. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. I see no clearer picture of the great white throne judgment than right here. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. You know it, right? It's a parable, but... (sighs) It looks pretty, pretty real. He's judging all of the nations, but particularly we can see the middlings, the intermediates. How can we assume that these are the intermediates? Because how are they judged in this text? How is the measure of judgment? By what they have done. And what does he say to them? I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in naked. You clothed me. I was sick. You visited. And he goes through this whole list. And then they say this remarkable thing. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. And there are many objections thrown about about who he's talking about, who his brothers are. We know Yeshua had a pretty big picture of how we're supposed to serve people. The Sermon, the sermon on the Mount, the, great, the Good Samaritan. He wasn't too particular about who you should serve with your life. These people gave their lives for others. And what does he say to them? What you did for them, you did for me. And to the other people, The goats, what does he say? You didn't do it. You didn't serve. You didn't demonstrate any faith. You didn't do anything to reflect me unless you did nothing for me. Man, that's significant. Significant. And the reward was commensurate with their deeds demonstrated by faith. They didn't even know what or who they were doing it for, but it was done for Yeshua. Their lives reflected what Wesley called provenient grace, a grace that comes to one before they are converted, a grace that draws one to Yeshua or to faith in God. And I quote, as I'm moving just to the end of this, I promise you, Dan Juster. Thus, for Wesley, John Wesley, there are not just two categories of human beings, the saved and the lost. There's a third category, namely those who embrace the revelation that God has given and are thereby on the road to Yeshua. Is it necessary that they embrace him before they die? It seems that this was left a mystery in Wesley's teaching, and it will remain a mystery in our teaching as well. until God fully reveals it. But here's a conclusion. Before our actual conclusion to is our hope in heaven next week. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Every school, every persuasion, every theology, every term I've thrown out, they all mention and know the certainty of eternal life is through the faith in the faithfulness of Yeshua and that no man or woman can stand alone before the holiness of God or enter into the world to come on their own merits, that the judge must make that judgment. But that judgment remains only within his domain. God and Yeshua make that judgment. And without faith, it is impossible to please him for the one who comes to God must believe he exists and that he proves to be the one who rewards. It is possible that those brought up from the dead at the second resurrection will be judged as to how they have responded to the light God had given them in creation, in nature, as Paul talks about, in their own consciences, C.S. Lewis says there are certain things that they must acknowledge. First, they've lived with an awe and dread of something beyond this natural world. Secondly, they've lived with this sense of morality, an uh, oughtness, as Paul describes, like the Gentiles who live as if they have the law. And third, with a relation and response that the supernatural authority will hold you accountable, that there is more. And as Yeshua said to the sheep and goats, how their life reflected in faith their deeds, but it's much more, and hear me say this very, very clearly, it's much more than, we're good people. They will be sinners. They will be evil on some level. These are people who were in Sheol or Hades. They will be imperfect and could never merit salvation apart from one word, grace, chesed, grace. And Paul says it like this, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not one of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. Judaism counts on this grace. Absolutely counts on it. There's never a time when a Jew stands before God and says, hey, i've done enough torah dude i'm coming in step aside i'm boldly marching into your presence because i'm good enough jews don't think that way it's the exact opposite Avinu malkenu, our father our king be gracious to us and answer us though we have no worthy deeds Act toward us with charity and loving kindness and save us. But that charity and loving kindness, here's the deal, guys. That charity and loving kindness may be applied quite broadly beyond our sense of what God is going to do. Some will be found in the book of life. Many, many will not. And that is an uncomfortable mystery. I'm a believer in God's mercy and grace. I'm a believer in some version of hope beyond what many traditional control beliefs tell me I should believe. I believe John 14, 16 is about what Messiah does to affect our salvation, not what we humans do in receiving that. I believe God can and does distribute the gift of salvation made possible by Messiah to anyone he chooses, based not upon their deeds, but the faith in which he sees in them. A faith that can be demonstrated by someone's deeds. That they come to the Father through Yeshua, who is the way, the truth, and the life, even if they did not in this life necessarily have the clearest understanding of who he was it is remarkably controversial, I understand that and some of you some of you in the room or online you may never hear me say another word at Shalom Makin. it might be the last message because you don't want to hear lies and heresy and deception. What about missions, Rabbi? What about evangelism? Well, I'll I'll mention that in conclusion next week, but here's the thing. And I'm just going to read Dan Juster's words because he states it better than I could. And Dan Juster is a very, very well-educated, well-respected, evangelical, messianic Jewish rabbi and leader in Israel. And here's what he says, and I agree, that we are to act on the basis of the general lostness of people, both Jew and Gentile. We are only to be at rest with regard to their destiny when they have explicitly confessed and embraced Yeshua and have given evidence that this embrace is sincere. That evidence will show an authentic transformation and a growing ability to bring forth good fruit. We may meet people who give evidence that they know and walk with God, but have not yet embraced Yeshua. We need not condemn them as lost and judge their hearts, but we are not to have confidence in their destiny unless they embrace Yeshua. They could be on the road to him. We are also to hold open the possibility of a wider mercy or hope on the basis of the many scriptures that describe such a thing. This hope should be held in a way that does not blunt our zeal to see people embrace Yeshua. At the same time, this hope enables us to give a more powerful theodicy, arguing for the justice of God in the face of evil and giving answers to those who ask concerning the destiny of those who may not have explicitly embraced Yeshua. I am willing to rest in the mystery of God, he says. Ultimately, as C.S. Lewis said, God has been clear on the destiny of those who sincerely embrace Yeshua, but he has not told us clearly concerning Yeshua the others. There is enough hope, there is a hint in Scripture, for us to hold open the possibility of a version of the wider hope and the goodness of our Father that he would give us this. My sermon map, I was working on it, and it's written, I noticed, on the back of a piece of paper for the lyrics for a song that's called, How Great is Our God. Name above all names, worthy of all praise, my heart will sing, How great is our God. And you know, the truth is, what's the alternative? I'm not going to stop talking about Yeshua. I'm never going to stop being an evangelist. And I understand this idea. I understand that you don't know until you know that someone has declared and put their faith in Yeshua. But what's the alternative? To be like Jonah? To be angry? that God actually did save the Ninevites? Why'd you do that? They were wicked and mean. Why'd you do that? You made me look stupid. That's what Jonah said. And he was angry. And God had to show him a lesson. What's the alternative? Be angry and mad and vindictive and hateful and feel like I'm part of some special unique club with a secret handshake and code word and decoder ring? Or to hold out hope that God is bigger than I could have ever even imagined and that he's not looking at the outside, he's looking at the inside like he did with David. And sometimes that's the way it is. And I want everyone to be a part of the first resurrection. But I must have hope. Does it change my presentation of Yeshua? Is it watering it down? Is it neutering the power of the gospel? No, but I do think it helps me see the vastness of the map what Christopher Columbus couldn't see. And I won't stop talking about Yeshua because of this scripture. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. But as Dan Juster has described it, we remain committed to evaluation from a place of lostness, whether Jew or Gentile, because according to those words of Yeshua, the wider hope that we discussed might not be exactly that wide. Most societies have demonstrated that that's true, and the wider hope would probably be phrased better, the narrow wider hope. So how do we present that to the world? We'll conclude next week. Thank you for your patience. Shabbat shalom.